Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest has a special place in Irish sporting annals because he broke through the glass ceiling to become the only Irishman to own a Formula One team. An incredible journey in the world's most expensive sport was highlighted perhaps by his taking both first and second place in the Belgium Grand Prix back in 1998. It's a pleasure to welcome Eddie Jordan. And Eddie, a lot of us are perhaps getting a only now a proper understanding of the huge stress involved in running a Formula One team because we're watching a series called Drive to Survive on Netflix, a, a behind-the-scenes documentary, and we can see there's so many elements in Formula One that can cause massive problems for a team principal. Well, I think that was part of the the aspect. You know, most people in the media, they concentrate on the principal character, which is the driver, and then they fail to perhaps fully understand that the driver makes up maybe 20% of the overall package. If the car is no good, doesn't matter if he's Lewis Hamilton or, or, or Jackie Stewart or whoever, it just doesn't happen for him. But then on top of that, you've got the stress of staff, the making of the car, the design of the car, the paying for it, and then you've got the sponsorship and going from place to place. That's before you start talking about television income, which, of course, has dramatically improved since the day I was there. So, yes, it was stressful. Just interesting on that Des, I often say, and people say to me, you know, surely that was your best day or when you won there or you did that or so. And I said, look, please forget that because that all pales into insignificance. The most important and the best day of my life was to survive Formula One, to be actually able to start it, to finish it with credibility and paying everyone. That was the biggest achievement way and by far that I felt I achieved. Yeah, the money involved. I mean, you were one of the small teams, yet how big a staff had you? Well, at its heyday, it's a small. When we started off, there was probably only about thirty of us, primarily Irish people, because they were the people who were so desperate to do it, and they didn't need exorbitant money. So, uh, I mean, I, I was on a win-win situation. But at the heyday, when Jordan was winning, it had uh, just short of four hundred, and, and you know that doesn't really. Uh, paint the picture properly because behind that there was lots of things I was a great delegator that was one of the things that I thought was good so I delegated to other outsourcing of of manufacturing and and ability to be able to make things under different controls and and, uh, not just safety controls but quality controls uh, to make sure that we had the best parts but I didn't have to employ the people so you know, nowadays, if you look at the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, for example, it must be about 2,000 people just to prepare for two cars. It seems just not logical to most people listening to you, but that's what it takes. Yeah. And amongst the, apart from the money, getting an engine backer, you have the natural jealousy and rivalry that appears between the two drivers. Well, it's different to, to certain sports, like we'd say Gaelic football or something like that, even soccer. But in soccer, if you're on the bench... You are naturally envious. You want to, when you come off the bench, you want to do better than the guy you've just replaced. That's for sure. It, it's the same thing in Formula One, except it's more exacerbated in terms of it's easier to see. The first thing a driver will do, he will always ask or he'll always look. He might tell you differently, but he's lying if he does. The first thing he will do is see what time his teammate did. And then he knows 
where the bar is set. And depending on how pushy he is of himself, he'll only some people will only try to beat his teammate, but others will go on further to try and get a better position on the grid. But it's the teammates, the rivalry inside the team. They'll all pretend they're great pals. They'll all say they share the same information, but they never do. And they lie like hell between each other. <laughs> and they try and confuse and get each engineer on either side to come along with him. So, no, this is our team. And no, you can't see that. I would never allow that and never tolerated that. So, um you still, nevertheless, we're always deceived by the drivers. The drivers are very skillful at it. They're great liars, and there's always every excuse in the book, and it's always somebody else other than them. Mm. And and getting an engine, I mean, a lot of us would think, well, you just get an engine. It's it's not about that. You you have to do deals with the big manufacturers. Well, in my case, and this is probably now in hindsight that makes me feel that just a little bit more proud of what we achieved, whether, you know, by and large, as I mentioned, the fact that a lot of us, Gary Anderson, an Irish boy, um, quality quality guy uh, from Coleraine, he and I basically had this idea and put it together. In, in terms of the engine supply, you know, where I wanted to be, I wanted to be totally independent. I wanted to be able to say that we were able to make it, we survived it, we won the races, and we won it as Jordan. In the time that we won, we won with Ford and we won with Honda and previous other manufacturers in other categories and other formulas. But the reality is that, you know, nowadays Mercedes is a, a massive, massive institution and the same goes with Ferrari. And then you've got, you, you had at the time, you had Toyota and then you had uh, Peugeot and Nissan and just endless numbers, BMW. You had everybody in there. So we were up against the manufacturer's team. But actually, the biggest thing was being up against the manufacturer's dollars, the ability of what they had to spend and the ability that they had to go inside their own technology departments, um, which were road cars. But nevertheless, what the ideas and what, the, if you like, the engineering qualities that these people had uh, at source, we never had. So... But we were much stronger, and by that I say we were totally focused. We didn't have anything in interfering with our mindset. That was the target. That's where the bar was set, and we had to achieve, and we had to push ourselves like crazy to make sure we got over that bar. And then when we were over the bar, we had to lift the bar again and keep going. And that was that's how it was. I mean, out, outwardly, most people would think, God, you know, Jordan could have achieved much more if they were a little bit more serious. But that was a little bit of a scam, and that was part of our folklore now and that is that we gave people the impression that there was nothing but fun and parties and rock and roll and girls on the grid and this and that and the other but that was absolutely a smokescreen it was so good because people swallowed that so easy but behind that was a steely determination a complete passion uh, to achieve what we could do we had one shot at this and we had to be sure that we were going to be successful and of course, it, there were heady days in Ireland because everybody in Ireland was glued to Formula One and following Jordan, which I know you're aware of, even though you weren't here for it. But, and of course, didn't Michael Schumacher get his breakthrough you? Well, you know, that, that's worth um, just very little bit about the, the past. I was very fortunate. I'd been a driver and I was in this team. And I came from uh, Marlborough Team Ireland, as it happened, and, and, and got into the Marlborough Team as a result of winning some championships as a driver. So that was lucky again. And um, so... I remember being in the same team as Alan Prost and Nicky Lauda, James Hunt and those people at that team. And I remember I became really quite close with Nicky and he said to me, look, Eddie, um, we're the same age, but I've just won a world championship and 
honestly, you've got to think about it. And you know, you've got Marie, you've now one baby, and you've got to think about where you're going in this. And if I were you, there's a, a huge opening here to set up and start a junior team. And I'm happy with the other guys, James and various other people. In fact, the first driver I ever had was James Hunt's brother, David. And that's how it happened. But in 1982, what some people don't fully realise, I gave a guy called a Silva his first ever chance. And uh, the following year, we went to Macau as part of a Marlborough team, and we won the Macau Grand Prix, and he changed his name to Senna. So I've had the really oh. very fortunate position where I've had Senna, I gave him his first drive in Formula 3, same with Damon Hill and the same with Michael Schumacher and they're all world champions I mean that's what 12 or 13 world titles combined with the amounts that they've actually won and then you forget other people like Irvine who was awesome Ralph Schumacher friends and Barry Kello um, I could go on with all sorts of drivers including Alessi and, and Fisica you know the just there was a huge array of great talent that I felt that Jordan seemed to bring them on we didn't charge them a lot of money, but I held their contract. And when I sold them, that's where I made my money. And that money then went into the team. So if you like, Ferrari was amazing for us because um, Stefan Johansson, John Alessi, Michael Schumacher, Barrichello, Irvine, Fisichella, all those six drivers. I mean, I got handsomely played by Ferrari because they wanted to think. But I went through the schoolwork, if you like, yeah. um, the kindergarten. I made them into what they were or helped them make them into what they were because they had the talent. Um, but Ferrari, thankfully, um, they saved my skin on more than one occasion, I must say. It's an amazing story. Is it true that you fell into motorsport almost by accident during a bank strike? Well, it is true. I was in Mullingar in a bank strike. I was working for the Bank of Ireland. I was always interested in karting, um, but um, never to any real extent that I went out and did anything. And uh, again, Itchy Feet always wanted, wanted to travel. And um, I went to work for the Jersey Electricity Company during that summer uh, and worked in the Bristol Bar serving pints at night. And um, Jersey is a strange place that everything closes down on Sunday. You can't do anything. But one of the very few places, you can't even go and have a pint. Uh, you, but there was a go-kart track. And I met a guy called Derek Warwick, who later became a great Grand Prix driver. And I started there, he started there. And um, that's how it happened. I came home and won an Irish championship. I, I just was lucky that I had a certain talent and I, I knew, um, if you like, how to do it. Um, and, and then it went on with a lot of help from a lot of people, mind, because you do need that sense of luck. And I always say that I'm perhaps uh, ever the luckiest person you could ever meet. Um, a lot of things have fallen into place for me and um, I'm so grateful for that. Well, yeah, well, it was more than luck to it, obviously. But your success in Formula One, ultimately, it did give you access to the music industry and, and a whole new world because Formula One is rock and roll. It's just, it's a different element. That's exactly right, you know. Um, I think uh, the rock and roll people often, we often see, why do they, you know... Um, the magnetism of Formula One. Why do rock and roll characters and people fit? Well, I think it's different. You can't go to Croke Park, for example, or Dalymount or whatever, uh, Aviva Stadium. You can't just go there and sit there anymore because you'd be just hounded or, or, or rock stars don't seem to like that or movie stars. They, they like A, to be looked after, B, to make sure that they're under a certain kind of um, uh, security in terms of their own time and how they do that. This is a leisure time for them and they don't want to be uh, in the middle of a huge mass roaring crowds of media. So uh, hence 
there's that. But there's also the excitement. Remember, uh, Formula One is about noise. Um, there's absolutely no doubt it's about technology. Um, you know, there, there is a lot of elements to Formula One that brings the razzmatazz, and it makes it so aligned to that, what goes on in huge or major concerts um, and rock and roll stars. And your first musical choice is from George Harrison. The thing is that a lot of people were so in awe with the Beatles. And um, at a very early stage in Formula One, don't ask me why, but I think, you know, the romance or the romantic story of what Jordan was and what it stood for. Uh, but there was a couple of links to that. One, uh, of course, George lived down the road in, in Henley. I lived in Oxford. And um, it, it really gelled. He, he always liked Damon Hill. So the relationship gelled. Um, with Damon Hill, who was also a guitar player, so a number of those things happened. And um, there's a funny story I should tell you that you know the, the, there's three mothers: George Harrison's mother, um, Johnny Lydon's mother of the Sex Pistols, and Marie, my wife's mother, all lived and grew up in a place called Slaney in Wexford. And so that was the first uh, kind of funny incident that happened. And then George used to come dress up. Not as George, of course, used to dress up with all sorts of wigs and clothes and jacket. No one recognised him at all. So we'd wind up seeing him at the Grand Prix, particularly in Australia, because before Australia, he had a place in Hamilton Island, which we used to stay a couple of nights before we go to the Grand Prix. But he was absolutely obsessed with Formula One and he loved it. There's a Patty Boyd link to the song you've chosen. Well, the Patty Boyd link is wonderful and it's a kind of a, a great quiz question, but I think it's been played so many times now that most people know it. But um, George sang a song um, which is on the Beatles album. I don't know if people recognise what went on within the Beatles, but it was obviously a McCartney-Lennon uh, stronghold in terms of the songwriting. But every now and again, George used to come up with some classics and now and again he'd be given a couple of album, a couple of tracks per album. And one of them went straight to number one and it was called Something. And um, it was a song written about his then wife, which was Patty Boyd, who was a, a phenomenally successful model. And um, where Patty comes into her own is that there were three number ones written about Patty Boyd and they were all by different husbands, three different artists and she was married to each of each of the three. Yeah. Um, but there is a bit of a twig. Well, she left George and went to live with Eric Clapton and he sang um, Something in the Way She Moves which was an absolute classic as well and it's the same guy, it's still Eric, Eric, but it's in the name of Derek and the Dominoes when he did Layla. So all those threes went to number one, they're all written about the same girl and they were married both to Eric, to Derek and the Dominoes, whoever Derek is, uh, but it is Eric and, um, and of course George Harrison. So that's a wonderful story and I was, when I talked about George, I thought... You know, thinking back when Damon won that race that you made reference to, which was the 98 reference, mm. um, I said, you know, come on, we're going to have a few little drinks in the house and we we'll go out and have a gig, we'll go to a gig uh, later on, just immediately after. And I think it was within five, seven days. So I invited local people who hang out and I love the music, as you know. And, and, and um, Chris Rhea was rehearsing in our factory at the time for a, for a tour. So Chris came... Uh, George came, Damon Hill came, and a couple of others, and we went down to a gig um, in in the theatre in Oxford, um, which is called the, the Playhouse, and we went there, and I had rung Jules Holland, who was playing live that night, to tell him, look, a couple of us were coming down, so he had a little section for us, which was really, really cool. Um, and the funny thing is, as we were walking down there, little or nobody 
had any idea who George Harrison was and they were all clamouring over Damon but then he had just won that race it was quite funny when you realise when I went to see the Beatles in Dublin in Abbey Street uh, what 1960 whatever it was 64, 65, 66 I mean it was just mayhem um, and when you think about what the Beatles achieved and where they are in the world status as rock and roll stars uh, I mean it's phenomenal George was such a normal, normal man. Um, and of course, he died far too young at 59. It was very, very sad how it happened. Um, but I have fabulous memories of George. He was great to my team. And we loved we loved every time that he came to visit the team and, and support us. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's something by George Harrison, the choice of today's guest, Eddie Jordan. Now, you have another very strong link with Roger Taylor of Queen. Well, the connection with Roger was obviously uh, most people think, you know, the great band and they think about Freddie and all of that. But behind the scenes, there was, for me, uh, a couple of brilliant, brilliant artists. But then the guy I became quite friendly with, in fact, he lives, I live at the moment, I'm in Cape Town in, in South Africa and he lives just along the road here in Camps Bay. So uh, Roger uh, was a, a strange guy because... Um, when he did gigs on his own, he used to have a, a band called the SAS Band, um, and they formed a backing band for him. And when before Eddie and the Robbers, there was a band called V10, which was me, which I set up, and it was the same guys. So the SAA, SAS Band, I'd pay them, they'd come and we play in the gigs. So that was the early connection. Uh, and one day, um, oh, maybe... 20 odd years ago now, whenever. But uh, for those who may remember the invasion by uh, the Russians into Budapest uh, with the tanks in the middle of Heroes, what is now known as Hero Square, uh, and we were asked because the Grand Prix was on, we were asked, would we do a gig and put together my band? And um, on the way in the airport, coming the other way, leaving to go out of the airport, uh, I met Roger and I said to him where we were going, and he said, wow, that's pretty cool. And to my absolute surprise, just before the plane doors uh, closed, and he pitches on the hotel on, on, onto the plane to come and play, which effectively was his band. The piece that I particularly chosen and I like is that I was at Live Aid myself because one of the band, the SAS band, was Chris Thomas, and um, he he made uh, nearly all of Elton John's albums. He made The Pretenders. He made In Excess. He was a great, great producer, um, but. So he was in the band at the time. And so when we went to Live Aid, um, there's the a story which everybody knows because I've seen it on the video now about why Queen became the best band of the, the whole thing because Jim Beach, their manager, um, turned the sound system up, uh, whereas it had been regulated by Geldof to make sure that no one did that. But he, he got behind the scenes, distracted the sound engineer and turned the volume up. So it's, it's actually skullduggery at an unbelievable <laughs> level. And I mean, it was absolutely a great story. But... Um, uh, Roger sings this song, and when we're hearing the song, it's the voice. Uh, before, most of the voices that you hear these days, and you say, oh, that's Freddie Mercury, but there's always a little voice over it, higher, higher pitch, different note, everything about it, and he wrote this song. And if people go on to um, the Queen albums, you'll see how many songs have been put together by Roger Taylor, but he's an outstanding guy, and anybody who's a drummer, can go onto his website at the moment because during this lockdown he's giving the most amazing drum lessons for free and uh, well done to Roger he's an out and out star man and uh, everything about him is amazing 
Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Radio Gaga by Queen and Roger Taylor, the choice of today's guest, Eddie Jordan. Your, your third musical choice, Eddie, and it's an Irishman, Van Morrison. The out-and-out legend. I mean, for people who either travel the world or have to travel the world for their work or their job, a name that comes when people say are Irish people. Uh, yes, some people now say, of course, you too, and, and, and rightly so. Um, but in terms of uh, influences and people who were influenced, uh, and I'm talking about great people like Springsteen and Van Mo- um, obviously um, Bob Dylan, lots of different people were influenced by the sheer talent of Van Morrison because he wasn't the person at the front. He was uh, quite shy, media shy, which is unusual in that game. I mean, if you were looking for something, uh, an antidote to, 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 to Jagger, you'd say it has to be Van Morrison. He was that quiet and reserved, but what a brilliant musician uh, and brilliant in every aspect of his life. He was a, uh, a sensational man and brilliant for Ireland. I how, mean, did, how did you get to meet him? Well, uh, we talked about my early days when I was finishing school and before I went and joined the bank. Uh, we talk about 1966, 1965. I was at Sing Street. And we used to, on a, when your parents wouldn't let you go to these late night discos or late night gigs or whatever was happening, there was in Stella House, there was a place called um, Stella Marion, uh, Mount Marion. They had a cinema there. And during, from five till seven on a Sunday, there used to be a, a gig. Uh, and the best-looking girls used to go there, so we'd all queue up trying to get in. And um, it became a real folklore for unbelievable talent. I remember Skid Row used to go there, and, of course, that became Lizzie, Thin Lizzie with uh, with Phil Linnett and huge talents there, Granny's Intentions. Uh, Geldof came after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real, real star attraction was a band called Them, and um, they did songs like... Um, Brown Eyed Girl, and even before that uh, was Gloria. And it was Gloria that caught my um, real attention. In fact, when in my little band, when we do a gig and we finish the set off with Satisfaction, right at the end of Satisfaction, when we're thanking the band, I said, there's one other person we need to say thank you to, and her name is Gloria, and you spell it out like that. It's just, a, it's a fantastic song. And of course, he then went on to do amazing things. Um, I met him from a charitable point of view. Nice little story. I I got very lucky with the different things that came my way with charities and uh, also with the music. So I got an OBE from the Queen and I went along to pick it up. And to my absolute surprise, the person beside me uh, was Morrison. So I was chatting away to Van and I said, listen, Van, by the way, um, uh, next week I have my... um, Amber Rocks charity concert in, in, in London. And um, I said, Jesus, man, I'd absolutely love to see if your guys were available uh, because it would be the icing on the cake. Now, I thought that was the end of it because, you know, you, as you do. Uh, and then the very next day, his manager rang. He said, tell me more about the gig. Where is it? What's happening? How many people do you want to play? How long is the set? What will you do? And everything happened. The only thing we ever had to pay for was a couple of um, cheapo flights from Dublin to, to London for a couple of the boys. And... Nothing else was required. He was a gentleman. He played all night. In fact, which is most unusual, he came and had dinner with us before we, he went on stage. Of course, immediately after us, he was gone. When we want to go and say thank you, Van, he was out the back door and gone. But that's typical of Van Morrison. But as as regards a musician, there's probably very few in the world can claim somebody as naturally talented, but nevertheless naturally 
within himself and quite shy, so he's not out there pushing his own case. And um, so from from that side of things, uh, I remember seeing this particular song because we were friendly with the people who put this record together, which was Pink Floyd. Um, and Pink Floyd, in fact, I drove for Pink Floyd in uh, 1980 at the Le Mans Formula One, Formula the Sports Car World Championship race. Um, and um, the people involved there was the drummer in the band, which was Nick Mason. Uh, Dave Gilmore, of course, was the guitarist. But the person who put this thing together in, in um, Berlin it was uh, Roger Waters. And this is a song which I believe um, is a song uh, written by, by Gilmore. And what's interesting, when if people can actually go on YouTube or wherever they want to go, have a look at this particular track live. Um, because clearly he doesn't know the words. He's reading it from a monitor in front of him. He's got two people on both sides, uh, two groups. He's got the band, Robbie Robertson, in one side, and he's got the Hooters on the other, and he sings this song. Please, it is, it's chilling. You, the, the hairs on your arm will absolutely jump out of our skin. You won't believe how good this song is. It's amazing. My favourite song probably of all time. Well, it's a lovely way to finish. Eddie Jordan, thank you very much for joining us. Continued success to you. It's great hearing your story again. We'll play out with Van Morrison and Comfortably Numb. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.